0: to you by Lifetree at Jesus.com. And that's what we do here, we pay ridiculous attention to Jesus, not because we should, not because that's what we're supposed to do uh, if we go to church, or if we call ourselves Christian, we pay ridiculous attention to Jesus because he's the most fascinating, transformative person who ever lived. And that's true just culture-wide, it's not just true for those who believe and follow Jesus, So many aspects of what Jesus taught, what he modeled, has impacted all of culture. Uh, It's seeped into every little nook and cranny, even when you don't think it's there. We had a a film night um, last Friday night with our small group. We have about three or four of those throughout the year. They're fascinating evenings, because we choose a film that I just like, that has a lot of powerful message to it, Um, whether it's a comedy or a drama, or even we've watched quasi-horror films, we've watched sci-fi films, but we look for something that has some some deeper meaning somewhere trapped inside of it, but we never watch a movie that is exactly on the nose about Jesus. So last week we watched Dan in Real Life, which is one of my top five all-time favorite films. It's a subtle, small film, but it's so powerful. And... When we uh, talk about film nights with these teenagers that come to our house, I give them some ground rules about how to watch the film. I tell them the film has, on the surface, nothing to do with Jesus, but our goal on film night is to look for Jesus in a film that doesn't appear to have anything to do with Jesus. But we're looking for the way Jesus infects and infiltrates the characters that storytellers give us, and the themes that those storytellers address We're looking for Jesus in them, and uh, one of the premises of Film Night is that Jesus has wheedled his way into every created thing in the world. Even filmmakers who don't realize that they're also mirroring the character, personality, and behavior patterns of Jesus in their films, they are. Even people who don't believe in Jesus can create a film that centrally is about Jesus, even though they don't know it. So that's the premise of Film Night, and they're always, you know, the really, I have to say, the most amazing conversations I think I've ever had in my life are those nights on Film Night where young people see things that they never would have guessed would have been in the film, and everything changes. So, so um little rabbit trail about what paying ridiculous attention to Jesus is all about. It's that we're paying attention to him in a slowed-down way because uh, his influence, his character, his behavior patterns have have infiltrated everything uh, around us, if we would just pay attention. So today we're continuing our, and actually uh, concluding our month-long focus on reinventing the basics, and our goal here has been to highlight and spotlight um, a few things that we wouldn't normally think as basics in our life of following Jesus, and uh, of course, tracking them back to how Jesus modeled those things, because we are, after all, paying ridiculous attention to him, not to us, <laughs> yeah, particularly. So, the whole week, the whole month, we've been exploring some surprising basics, I would call them. Uh, we, we explored the role of music in our life, the role of silence, and last week, the role of laughter. And today, we're going to conclude on focusing on something that actually isn't overlooked. We talk about it a lot, and we do this a lot, but it's been confined and reduced to one particular way of expressing this basic, and that basic is worship. We call it worship, and as soon as I say the word, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about singing and about worship songs and about the worship time at Church, what always happens at the start and at the end of Church. Somehow we have figured out that that formula... Um, is the only formula we can follow. Um, So when I say worship, we think singing, but worship really is is just one expression of worship is singing, but that one expression has overtaken the whole meaning of the word. Worship is really, and when you come right down, when you boil it down, is simply mirroring back to Jesus the truth about who he is. We're just reflecting back to Jesus the beautiful truth about who he is. And that isn't only confined to singing. So that's what we're going to explore a little bit today, and I want to start in kind of an unusual way. I mentioned the small group that I lead uh, and the film night we had last Friday. Last night we met for our regular gathering, and uh, every time we meet I create a new way of exploring the heart of Jesus. Uh, That's all we do in that group, we don't do anything else. We simply explore the heart of Jesus from about 15,000 different angles. Actually, we're not up to 15,000 yet. I think last night was our hundredth uh, experience of going after the heart of Jesus. But last night, the title I gave to our pursuit and our exploration of Jesus was Jesus and his BFFs, meaning Jesus and his close collection of friends. Jesus obviously loved every person in front of him, no matter who it was. But he, like us, had a close group of friends. Um, he was drawn to some people and not drawn to other people. There were many people who were drawn to him, and a whole lot that weren't. Uh, so that, that's kind of like our life, too. We, we have our own circle of friends. And what we were exploring last night was, well, what drew Jesus to his closest friends, and what drew those people to him? What, what were the factors? Just like in any friendship. So, and I told them the story last night of how my my wife and I first developed a deep and lasting friendship before we ever married. i mentioned on the podcast before that my wife, Bev, and I were engaged three times, and (laughs) do the math, uh, you you get the picture that two of those did not work out, and both of them, both times, it was Bev who ended the engagement. And... uh, and i told them last night you know, they've heard some of our story before and why that happened um and the short answer to that is you know we were <laughs> we were both pretty you know messed up people who looked good on the outside and we we needed a lot of growth and help in order to move toward a deeper commitment like marriage and some of those those deeper issues that we had we weren't weren't even um uh, obvious to us except within the context of a growing relationship, uh, they surfaced. So, so, But I explained to them that after the second broken engagement, you would think that if the person you've been engaged to twice already has said no, somewhere along the line, that it would be time to move on. And I told myself, I have got to move on, or else there's something wrong with me. I need to, you know, this is just not going to work out, and I, I need to turn the page in my life and focus elsewhere. And and that's what I was doing for about six or eight months after the last engagement broke, and uh, then I I saw Bev um, at a at the wedding of a mutual friend, and she came up to me and very honestly, very vulnerably said, um, "Hey, I miss our friendship. Do you think we could at least meet for coffee?" And on the outside, I I gave her the impression that I was. Stubbornly not going to do it because I had said to myself, I need to move on from this. Um, so I, I didn't want to be open to that suggestion on the outside. But on the inside, I felt exactly the same thing that I missed our friendship. And so eventually, in that conversation, I said, Yes, we can meet for coffee. And we had it that first time we met again, it was a, a two hour conversation. It just felt just so much right. Like, uh, this friendship is deep, and it's never going to go away, and uh, I I can't really envision my life without this person in my life. And she felt the same way. And eventually, oh, glory be Eureka, we actually got married. We did have people show up at our wedding who were secretly convinced that this would be quite the spectacle, because um, they were giving 50-50 odds that Bev would say no at the altar. <laughs> and in fact, Bev reminded the group last night, and I forgot about this myself, when the pastor said, um, will you take this man, she paused before she said, I do. And she said she could hear the uh, little gasps <laughs> in the in the people who had come to, come to the wedding wondering, oh no, is this going to be it? Um, she explained, though, I paused because I was trying to drink it in, but yeah nevertheless, who knows? but i was was trying to say that that the my friendship with Bev was the platform and foundation for a marriage that's now twenty eight years old, and that friendship platform has taken us through many, many trials and tribulations in our life and I think if our friendship hadn't been as deep as it is it was and is uh any of those challenges might have derailed our relationship so we need friends and close friends like we need oxygen. We can't survive without friends. But how do friends become friends? Now, the, the, this is actually the portal into um, a new way of thinking about worship. That's, that's why we're talking about friendship here. So if we think about what makes a friendship work, like last night I asked these teenagers that, and they listed things like forgiveness and sharing and authenticity and vulnerability and willingness to take risks with each other and willingness to uh, hold—to say the true thing when the true thing needs to be said and things like that. And it was a great list of the kind of the building blocks of a close friendship. And I listed all those things on a whiteboard, and, and then I said, you know, friendship, you know, even based on what we're talking about here, is really like a discovery process. We're really like, Like uh, anthropologists or uh, explorers, we're trying to explore and discover what the other person is really all about. We're trying to discover if there's mutual enjoyment in the relationship, meaning do we enjoy the other, and does the other enjoy me? Do they get me, and do I get them? The process is literally like an expedition into somebody else's soul. And for some people, you've probably had this experience before, where you meet somebody for the first time and you immediately think, I, I love this person, I love something about their heart. You you know within a few minutes that you're really drawn to that person. Um, in some of those cases, the the deeper you know them, the more your initial experience of them is confirmed. And in some cases, the deeper you know them, the more you realize, oh, my initial impression wasn't th- wasn't right. But for a lot of our deep friendships, um some of us know from the very first time we meet that person that there's the potential for a, a deep friendship we're drawn to them and we've already disca- started the discovery process when that happens the, in the little minute ways that we explore each other to see what we're all about and see if there is a mutual attraction somewhere in there um and and the, the part of this that's important is the mutuality of it so when we start to explore the the people that Jesus was drawn to and why those people were drawn to him we're really plunging into the discovery process of of a friendship whose fruit in the end is worship the deeper our friendship with Jesus goes the more naturally worship comes spurting out sideways in our life not all and not all of that worship comes spurting out into singing by the way we'll talk about that toward the end of this episode. So, of course, Jesus had his own discovery process as he sought and developed his closest friendships just the same way that we do, and it really it comes down to discovering who he enjoys most and who enjoys him. So uh, I, I broke the group into, into three smaller groups, and they pursued um, three different paths of Jesus' friendships. One was with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the two sisters and a brother, who were his closest friends? It's interesting that none of them were among his disciples, but they were the people that he hung out with the most and who who knew him in a relaxed setting more than anyone else. Um, and then the second group took on Simon Peter. Uh, and there's quite a bit about his relationship with Jesus. And then the last group we kind of I, I kind of threw in three disparate people who had a kind of a common thread amongst them, and that they were they looked at Jesus' relationship with Nicodemus. Zacchaeus, and the Canaanite woman. So their their whole mission was simply to try to discover what drew Jesus to that person that they were looking at, or persons, and what drew those people to Jesus, and why was it. So um, when we met back together as a large group, one, one girl in the group, whose name is Emma Fisher, said something very nuanced, but I found very profound. I actually heard her say this in her group, and I asked her, would you please bring that up when the whole group is back together? So here's what she said. She, she was focused on um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and she said, Jesus liked to hang out with people who really get him. He, he celebrated people who got who he was, and she talked about this in the context of people worshiping him. Um, for instance, when, he, when she was exploring Mary's uh, relationship with Jesus, she and the, the you know the the story we all know about Jesus going to um, have lunch at Mary and Martha's house, and it, sa- it feels like it was kind of an unexpected visit because Martha's scrambling around trying to get ready for him. She wasn't prepared, and you get the sense that Martha is an uber prepared person, and she wasn't prepared for the Rabbi to come to her house, so she was really super stressed out about that. Uh, It was a very stressful situation uh, that Jesus put them in, either intentionally or unintentionally. And meanwhile, Mary is oblivious to all that stress. She's just drawn to listening to Jesus. That's all she wants to do. She wants to stop, slow down, and sit. It's kind of like my daughter Lucy came home from college for Thanksgiving week, and obviously in Thanksgiving week there's a lot going on. I mean, uh, not just for us, but for her too. She's reuniting with friends she hasn't seen for a while, and there's a lot of busyness that goes on. My hunger and desire, and I don't think I ever fully realized it while she was home, was just to have an hour or two where I'm just listening to her. I just want to hear her heart, and that didn't happen over Thanksgiving. I hope it happens over Christmas, but this is the motivation Mary had. She just wanted to connect with Jesus's heart. And what what Emma, the girl in our group, was noticing is that when Mary treated Jesus with a sense of worship and awe, even. She was recognizing the truth about who he is. And we made the point last night as we discussed this that, of course, our closest friends are also most often the people who get us the best. They really get what we're about, they appreciate us, is another way of saying it. Uh, you can go through a lot of your life feeling sort of taken for granted and unseen, but what happens when somebody shows you? that they see who you are, and they, and they reflect back to you the impact of who you are on their life, and they, uh, in one way or another, express their, their gratefulness for who you are, well, it's hard not to be drawn to that person. Um, and when Jesus had people around him who understood the truth about who he was and expressed that truth by worshiping him, he delighted in it. He encouraged it. He wanted more of it. He was pretty, pretty out there, pretty bold about saying, yeah, I, I think this is a great thing that you're worshiping me right now. Why? Because he was celebrating that they saw him for who he is. When you see the heart of God and how beautiful it is, and worship comes out of you naturally toward that, you're really reflecting back to God the truth about who he is. And who doesn't love that? Um, just because he's God doesn't mean that he doesn't enjoy people reflecting back the truth about who he is. So Jesus celebrates people who get him. So let's take a look, quick look, at three people that I think would be interesting for us to focus on. One of them, the Canaanite woman, I've already mentioned, but we'll go into greater depth with her. But let's start with the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. So I'll just read to you this little section of Matthew chapter eight, it's it's verses five through thirteen, and I, I want you to to um, think about what is this, what does the centurion get about Jesus that maybe others don't? What does the centurion get about Jesus that others don't, and what fruit does that produce in him? So here we go, starting with um, starting with verse eight, when Jesus returned to Capernaum a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed and in terrible pain. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, Go back home, because you believed it's happened and the young servant was healed that same hour." Let's just point out a few things here from this encounter. First of all, the the Roman officer obviously is a man of great power and influence. It's good to not forget this. He's an officer in the occupying army of Israel. So if this was happening during World War II, and let's say it happened in Poland, this would have been a Nazi officer approaching Jesus in an occupied territory, if you assume that Jesus was Polish. So this would have been a Nazi officer approaching Jesus, uh, one of the occupied citizens of this country, and asking him for help in a very humble way. And going even further, he lays down his authority to say, I'm not even worthy for you to show up in my home. I get who you are, and I get who I am, and there's, you can hear a kind of remorse. In his, in his voice as well, relative to how he sees himself. He knows that Jesus is higher. <laughs> he he for, for whatever reason, senses and acts on the fact that Jesus has the authority of God. Not just he's a good teacher, or sometimes happens to heal people or do these kind of crazy miracles, the centurion is treating him like God. Yeah that that's and so when Jesus says I tell you the truth I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel when Jesus says faith he's not talking about hey the this roman officer got the formula right yeah he he said the right words and he he cast the right spell that's not at all what Jesus is saying when he mentions faith here he's saying the faith of the roman officer was faith in Jesus heart and the truth about who he is he was treating Jesus exactly As he really was, when so many people did not. And Jesus goes on to say, hey, you know, um, Gentiles are gonna come from all over the world, and they're gonna be there with me in the kingdom of heaven, and a lot of Jews who think they have a past uh, because they're the chosen people, they're not gonna be there. And the reason why is that when a Gentile, like this Roman officer, Believes in who I am, reflects back who I am. Um, that really is the entry point into the kingdom of God. And just because you're a Jew and a chosen, and a quote-unquote chosen one, if you don't believe in who I am, then by extension you don't believe in the God that you say you do, because I have come from Him, and the only things I do are the things He gives me to do, or, um, and the things that I am right now saying and doing, I've all seen in Him first. So if you don't believe in me you don't believe in him. So this Roman officer is really, what he's fundamentally doing here is worshiping Jesus, and Jesus is amazed by his worship. His worship is reflecting back to Jesus the truth about who he is. And at its core, our worship in our life, we are worshiping whenever we reflect back to Jesus the truth about who he is, either by what we say or by what we do. And in this case, the Roman officer is doing both. He's saying, I believe you can do this, because I'm a man under authority, and I get that your authority extends to over the unseen world, over sickness and, and the demonic forces in the world. You have authority over everything. I get it. And I know when I exercise my authority, this is what happens, so I'm just asking you to exercise your authority. I get who you are. So he's not only saying the right things, he's doing the right things. He's saying, his doing is remarkable. He says, you, you don't have to even come to my house. I know if you just say the word. What an act of trust that that is. This is why Jesus is so amazed. And Jesus responds this way in moments of worship. Um, and Centurinus is, is is definitely worshiping him. Now we're going to flip over to John chapter 3 now, and we're going to take a look at Nicodemus. So in John chapter 3, Jesus has an encounter with a Pharisee, a kind of prominent, well-known, influential Pharisee named Nicodemus. If most of Jesus' encounters with Pharisees are not (laughs) good—in fact, that's that's to put it mildly—most of his encounters with Pharisees were of such a variety that the Pharisees plotted to kill him. They really didn't like Jesus, and they showed that over and over again. So this was unusual, because a Pharisee, on his own, intrigued by Jesus, went, uh, you know, under cover of darkness, but still went to go meet with Jesus. He was curious enough about Jesus that he wanted to go explore him. He wasn't showing up like all of the other Pharisees did to trap Jesus into something that would get him in trouble. No, Nicodemus showed up because he was curious. So here, I'll I'll read a little bit here from Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader, who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Well, Jesus replied, well, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life, so don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the sound but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, We tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one's ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And then he goes on a little bit further. So here we have this interesting encounter with Nicodemus, and here's what a couple of things I want to kind of highlight here. Nicodemus, by his curiosity and his willingness to ask questions and put himself underneath Jesus instead of over him, so his humility and his, desire and his curiosity, Jesus responds to. Jesus likes this guy. He likes him so well that he's willing to speak bluntly to him. <laughs> you know, here he is a guest in his home, and Jesus says, look, you, you, got, you and your gang have not believed some of the things I've said to you about earthly things. You pushed back. Well, why would I expect you'd get the stuff about heavenly things? Those are a little; those are even harder to understand and grasp. He's just being blunt with Nicodemus. He's giving Nicodemus the gift of bluntness, and there's something about this interchange that speaks to a growing friendship. And later on, Nicodemus, in his own way, uh, forestalls this movement against Jesus to murder him he very wisely, very shrewdly uh, refocuses the, the, the Pharisees for a while away from that plan with Jesus. And it's obvious it's because Jesus is impressed with him. I mean, Nicodemus is impressed with Jesus. So here's a form of worship that probably you've never thought about before. But when you express and act on your curiosity about Jesus, when you pursue him with a curious heart, that is worship because you are recognizing that he's worth the pursuit. So when you express curiosity and act on it, you are uh, expressing worship because you're kind of framing your pursuit of him with the knowledge that he's worth pursuing. If you think about the the two little parables that Jesus told, the parable of the hidden buried treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price, both parables are about People who recognized a treasure right in front of them that everyone else had passed by or missed, that they had slowed down to appreciate the value of the treasure. And that's why they ended up sacrificing everything for that treasure. So here, the same thing is happening with Nicodemus. Nicodemus risks his reputation, his standing with the other Pharisees, and even his own standing as a religious leader to pursue the treasure that he tasted in Jesus. He risks to pursue it, and the, these two little parables that Jesus tells are really about, will you slow down and be curious enough to properly value the treasure that's in front of you? We'll talk a little bit more about how you can do that on our daily basis in just in just a moment. But we're going to go to one last person to look at their encounter, and this is I've mentioned before this is my favorite encounter of all of jesus encounters with people this is by far my favorite i love it i think it's so profound and we will find it in matthew 15 jesus-centered bible the heading is the faith of a gentile woman so let me just read this and we'll talk about it for a second jesus left galilee and went north to the region of tyre and sidon a gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading have mercy on me o lord son of david for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us all with her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And she replied, That's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, Your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. So a couple of things to point out here that maybe I haven't pointed out before. Um, here Jesus' last statement to this woman is very similar to what he says to this the Roman officer. Your faith is great. What is the faith? Did she get the formula right? Did she cast the spell the right way? Did she say all the right words? No. Her faith was getting the heart of Jesus. She understood, embraced, and acted on what she saw was true about the heart of Jesus. And here's something that maybe you've missed when you've heard or read this story before. When Jesus says to her, to responding to her request for her daughter to be healed, I'm, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel, the next line says, She came and worshipped him pleading again, Lord, help me. So the way in which this woman worshiped Jesus was to not give up after he told her, no, I'm not going to do it. She didn't stop and sing a worship song (laughs) and then plead with him um, to, to heal his daughter, to help her. No, what this is saying is the form of worship that she offered Jesus was this tenacious trust in him, that I'm not leaving here because I know who you are, and I know what you can do, and I know you can help my daughter. I don't care if you only came for the children of Israel. I don't care. I'm not going anywhere. And my form of worship is to persevere with you right now. I'm going to persevere in my trust with you. And when she did that, Jesus pushed back again. He said, it's not right for me to you know, th- uh, take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Once again, she worships him with her reply, which is extraordinary. You know, even the dogs get the crumbs off the master's table. And Jesus lights up at this and says, oh my gosh, your faith is great. He's again responding to her act of worship, which is to reflect back to him the truth about who he is and act on it. So um, three different encounters, all, I, I'm making the case, um, infused by worship. Um, so, how can we do that more often in our everyday life? Let's get outside of the thought that worship is simply about singing, and just talk a little bit about um, other ways that are natural can-, can be natural and rhythmic in our life where we can express our worship to Jesus in a in a kind of a organic way. So number one, um, read a stretch of Jesus longer than you typically do. What I mean by that is choose. Choose a chapter, for instance, in one of the Gospels, and read it from end to end. Um, Choose one that has a lot of red in it, where Jesus is talking a lot, and just read it from end to end at one sitting. Um, And as you read—so the reason for this, by the way, is typically in the Church, we take little chunks out of our uh, Bible reading. We we use— scripture passages, we use verses to illustrate a teaching point or a study point. And that's actually not the way the Bible was intended to be read, it's a narrative. Um, And so when I say, read a longer stretch than you typically would do that uh, that includes Jesus, um, John chapter 5 is a great example, for instance. So what you do when you're reading a longer stretch Is you're savoring what you're reading. You're trying to get inside the heart and mind of Jesus by paying better attention to what he's saying and why he's saying it, or what he's doing and why he's doing it. You're constantly asking yourself the question, um, what is he doing and why is he doing it? Um, And when you do that, you end up hitting what I call speed bumps, where something will kind of just stick out to you and make you want to slow down. For instance, in John chapter 5, here's a few speed bumps that I encountered just the other day when I was reading through the whole chapter. The first one is in John 28 through verse 30, and uh, here's what Jesus says, and he's speaking um, to the people now, to Jewish leaders, and so it's a kind of a hostile environment. So in verse 28, um, he, he says, "'Don't be so surprised, indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves—' will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. And those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. So here's a bizarre thing. Jesus is telling these hostile religious leaders that the people who are dead right now, dead and gone, are either continuing in their movement toward him or continuing in their movement away from him, which is what evil is, that these Dead people somehow are still accountable to what they're doing right then, and he's saying they'll all have an opportunity to move toward me, but some won't. They will continue to move away from me, and those people, uh, because moving away from me is the definition of evil, they're going to experience judgment. So that's a fascinating thing that Jesus has to say there. Wow, he he's he's saying point blank. That uh, even those who have passed away um, continue, in some form, (laughs) to do good or evil, and that he's going to deal with that um, face-to-face with them. Another place in John chapter 5 that made me stop and pause, this just jumped out at me. Here's a big speed bump. He says in verse 39 and 40, "'You search the Scriptures because you you think they give you eternal life.'" But the Scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me, receive this life. Think about this, what a challenging thing this is if, you're, if you've been going to church your whole life. It's probably true that, um, especially if you're in an evangelical tradition, that the Bible sometimes has been treated as if it was Jesus himself. And here Jesus is saying, you search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. No, the pages of that book don't give you eternal life, he's saying. But, but you don't understand that those pages point to me, a real person, and it's a real person who's going to give you real, uh, real eternal life. Um, But you refuse to come to me, Uh, even though the scriptures clearly are pointing to me. You won't come to me. You'll stay with the book. So another challenging thing that Jesus says, He's really saying, "Come to me. Let the book point to me, but don't let your pursuit of me stop at the book. Come and experience me directly." So uh, this practice of just slowing down, reading a bigger chunk of Jesus, paying attention to the speed bumps because you're asking, what is Jesus doing and why is he doing it? And you slow down to consider what I just did. Wow, that's amazing what Jesus is saying here. Then out of that response, you simply recognize the beauty of who Jesus is. So everything I just said just now, uh, my amazement at Jesus and my amazement at what he does and says is worship. It's my way of pausing in the middle of the day to recognize how unique and beautiful he is. And that, that's what you do. When you come to a speed bump and something uh, emerges and surfaces for you that's beautiful and true about Jesus, you simply reflect back to him what you just experienced, either silently or aloud. Uh, that is a form of worship that you can do whenever you crack open the Bible. And I'd, uh, I'd encourage you, as we're heading into Advent here, to take at least one time a week where you read a longer stretch of Jesus. Slow down, experience the speed bumps. This whole process can take 10 minutes or less, actually. It's not a lengthy process, but to slow down means to, to take your time, to savor what you're reading. So idea number two, um, again, especially because we're entering into the Advent season, we are, we're already there, really, and uh, we all know what a stressful time it, that is. And next week's podcast, by the way, uh, will be uh, Steph Hilberry and I uh, talking about. Uh, we're going to kick off a, a kind of a month-long series on the Advent from a totally different perspective than you're used to. And our first one out of the gate will be to talk about Jesus and stress. The stress we experience around the holidays is unmatched through most of the rest of the year. And so we'll talk about what is Jesus' response to stress, and how does that help us in the midst of our very real circumstances? So, so that'll be next week's podcast, but um, uh, idea number two here is to monitor your stress level, and when you recognize that you're in stress right now, you have that gut tightening of the feeling, or you wake up at night and you're worried about something, um, this, this practice is very simple. You simply stop to remember how big he is, And how relatively small the things we're worried about really are. Here's the deal, especially at night, our worries and challenges become huge. It's like the night is a magnifying glass. It magnifies all of these things and overshadows the bigness of Jesus. Uh, My pastor at my church, Scotty Priest, uh, uh, gave a great sermon on Sunday, and one of the illustrations he used was um, how we tend to look at the binoculars either from the small end or the big end. If we look through the small end of the binoculars, everything we see is bigger than it really is, but if we look through the, the wide end of the binoculars, everything is smaller than it really is, and he was suggesting that the, a life of following Jesus is really about looking through the binoculars from the big end, so that everything really is smaller than we make it out to be, it's not as magnified as it is. So, so when you feel your stress level going up, a form of worship is to simply stop. Remind yourself how big and good he is, that he's the one who promised that he's numbered every hair in your head, that he's the one who's promised that if you're attached and connected to him, there's nothing you can't do, and he's the one that promised that nothing is too big for him, and therefore nothing nothing in your life is too big for him. Just stop and remind yourself of that truth. Think about those binoculars and turn them around. And look through the big end at your situation. That's an act of worship. Number three idea is to simply recognize your idols and turn away from them and toward Jesus. When you do that, that's worship. So uh, a friend of mine told me recently that Jacques Allel, the the great uh, uh, 20th century philosopher and uh, uh, Frenchman who wore many hats, theologian, mayor of a city, all kinds of things, um, great thinker, um, he he uh, wrote about how Western culture has made death an idol, which is fascinating to me. We, we basically frame death as bigger and more important than anything else, um, even above the very clear uh, instructions Jesus has given us about that we're, we're living eternal life right now, that our life goes on forever. And if that's the case, if that's true, then when we live like that, we're worshiping him. We're believing in the truth that he's told us, and we're not so much concerned about death as, as our default setting. So that's an idol. But other idols could be, are your kids an idol? Especially here at the holiday time, is pleasing your kids an idol in your life? Is your car, your status, or your professional accomplishments, are those an idol? An idol is really anything you value more and trust more than Jesus. So how about your need to organize or control or plan? Is that an idol? Well, tell yourself, and you can say this directly to your idol as, as well, it's wrong to worship you, idol. <laughs> Jesus, I now turn to worship you. So when you sense that something has become an idol, you simply stop, pause, name the truth, hey, it's wrong to worship you, idol, and I'm going to turn away from you now, and Jesus, I worship you now. Jesus, you are more important and more trustworthy than the thing that I was believing in. That's a way to worship Jesus. Number four is read a great book, especially during this holiday time when uh, people often have more time off from work. Um, I know it sounds counterintuitive when you've got all this stuff going on, but maybe uh, during this holiday time or shortly after, you decide, I'm going to read a book that unveils the real Jesus. So outside of the Bible, Read a book that draws you to Jesus as he really is. Not every book about Jesus is really about Jesus, by the way. There's, um, you'll discover this quickly, that the Jesus of the Bible is not always well represented by popular Christian writers. But here, here are four books that I could suggest for you to read during this time. Uh, Beautiful Outlaw by John Eldridge is a fantastic book about the truth about Jesus. Similar, Jesus Mean and Wild by Mark Galley. Is a, is a great uh, uh, kind of exploration of the edge part of Jesus, really reveals uh, a major part of his personality that uh, will, after you've read this book, you'll you want to worship him. Um, another book in that realm is John Ortberg's Who Is This Man? I think it's the greatest book about the impact of Jesus on the world that I've ever read, and it will produce worship as you're reading. And of course, you can read uh, my own Jesus-centered life, um, Uh, which is a a foundational uh, book about what it means to live a life that is magnetically orbiting around Jesus, and much of that book is really about why orbiting around Jesus is a natural outcome of getting to know him as he really is. The last thing, idea number five, is breathe your worship to him all day long, meaning instead of making worship a separate compartment, Simply breathe that worship out to him all day long. If there's a a favorite phrase in a song, for instance, or uh, something that is meaningful to you that reminds you of his beauty, uh, or some uh, beautiful aspect of him, just breathe it under your breath all day long. I find myself, almost every day, I, I will say under my breath something like, Jesus have mercy on me, Jesus have mercy on me. And what I'm really saying to him is, I trust you, I believe in you, and I need your kindness, because your kindness is transformative. So I often will walk through my day simply, almost silent way, Jesus have mercy on me, Jesus have mercy on me. Um, Whatever your phrase is, you can breathe it all day long. Uh, When you're walking in between meetings, uh, when you're making dinner or doing the dishes, you just breathe it to him. We make worship not a compartment, but something that's like breathing all day long. Well, gang, there you have it. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail, on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. Just find our podcast section and you're looking for season three, episode 48. And don't forget, you can check out the links on that page as well. Adam will post those up there. Check out the Jesus Center Bible, fantastic Christmas gift, by the way. And also, since we're ending our whole month-long focus on reinventing the basics, check out our three little basics books, written by my friend Michael Kiefer. They're fantastic little books. They're very, very pragmatic, just chock-full of ideas on prayer, that's one book, on God, on finding God's will, that's a second book, and on reading the Bible, that's a third book. These make great gifts for students, by the way, but also from for someone in your life who wants something that's a little bit of a different devotional approach, someone who's more action oriented. These are fantastic books for that person. So check those out on our links. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all of the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.